I've mentioned it to my family, but in terms of telling people like, oh yeah, we're doing this, I'm looking for projects. You got anything, yeah. I'm, I'm not there yet because it scares the out of me. Dreaming of launching your own architecture firm? Well, well, buckle up for a wild ride with Emerging, the podcast that shares what it's really like to start an architecture firm. Where do we begin? We don't even know what type of business to formalize as. Is it an LLC? Is it an LLP? Like how are taxes? I mean, the list is astronomical. Season one featured founders Jeffrey, Lexi, and Chris, owners of Level Studio Architecture, are your fearless guides on this unfiltered journey from napkin sketches to a thriving studio. One evening, stumbled into one last dive, we sat at the bar and pondered our postgraduate futures. Amidst the conversation, a napkin became the canvas for our aspirations, sketching plans and milestones, sealing our heartfelt commitment and shared dreams. In drawing down dreams on a napkin collectively, that (laughs) then, you know, in your head, you've rooted like, oh, I'm connected to these people, like long term. The process of starting an architecture practice brims with excitement and challenges, demanding meticulous planning, flawless execution, and unyielding resilience. I kind of hate the term because it's so overly used, but I think everybody knows imposter syndrome. And I think it's, it's so real to this day. I, I I don't know if it's with everybody, but with me, I'm always questioning like us, can we do this? Are we ready to do this? Are we prepared? Can we do it? Did we just decide a name? (laughs) We did it guys. The one that came out of nowhere. It came out of nowhere. I liked it. I saw it. Ready to turn your aspirations into reality? Follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Emerging and chart your own path to architectural success. This is Spaces Podcast, where we aim to elevate the appreciation and understanding of the spaces we occupy every day. Hello, my name is Demetrius. This is Michelle. Hey, everyone. And this is Jason. Morning, guys. And you are listening to Spaces Podcasts. Thank you for coming back, everybody. Today, we are discussing adaptive reuse. Jason, I'll start with you. Are you familiar with adaptive reuse? And if you are and have been into a space that you could identify... Uh, let me know what do you what do you think about the concept? I don't know if I've been in an adaptive reuse space, which may be a really good thing if I have been once it's detailed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I bet you have a lot of the sort of mainstream versions of this are like uh, you've probably been into a brewery or a bar or restaurant that may have been something previously, and you may not have noticed that it was actually redone, but that's kind of the space. It's It was an existing space that was redone into yeah. something else. Then I definitely ha- have. I think uh, I think it's funny you talk about bars and beer. I don't really drink very much, but then when we got to <laughs> restaurants, I like to eat, so we're good there. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, I have. And actually, I think a lot of times it's, it's really neat because you can see, like there's like a history feel to it. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? And there's just a lot more interesting elements to it as opposed to something that was purely built for just whatever that item is in there. 
um, and how they've had to be creative with different spaces. So it's, it's pretty cool. But yeah, I definitely have. Yeah. I really love these types of spaces for a couple of reasons. One, you do get that, those cool bones that you can see mm -hmm. of what it previously was. But the other element to it is that you are not tearing down something and having to start all over and reuse a lot of resources. But Michelle, have you been into a space? Yeah, I think my favorite example is probably what the Kimpton Hotel brand is doing. Hmm. Um, so they have, and I don't know if it's for every property, but I think it's for the majority of them. Uh, they're taking old office buildings a lot of times in downtown areas and converting that to hotels. And they've just done done it in a way that has a lot of character, um, in many cases sort of is an ode to you know, whatever that downtown might be. So they are adapting it to match kind of what the facade and, and other elements in that downtown. So I, that, that's one example, but personally, I don't really have any, um, you know, the line of work that we're doing at city ventures isn't, isn't adaptive reuse. It's certainly reuse of land um, and the redevelopment of land, but it's not taking existing buildings and re or adapting those to other uses. So really excited about the guest and the content that we're going to be talking about today. Yeah. So our, we have guests in that specialize in this area. One is a senior principal and design principal. He's part of a four person leadership team for HOK's St. Louis studio and serves on HOK's firm wide executive committee and design core board has 25 years of experience and his adaptive reuse work includes the 4340 Duncan Lab, an office building in the Cortex Innovation Community in St. Louis, and Tyson Foods Emma Avenue office building in Springdale, Arkansas. And that is Eli Hoisington. Our other guest is principal and senior project designer in HOK's St. Louis office, where he leads a broad range of projects, including new and adaptive reuse projects for innovative districts, corporate headquarters, commercial workplace, and science and technology. His recent adaptive reuse work in the fields also include 4240 Duncan and 4340 Duncan Lab and office buildings in the Cortex Innovation District in St. Louis and he is currently working on a historic federal courthouse transformation in Salt Lake City. That is Tim Guides. Please help me welcome Eli Hoisington and Tim Guides. <laughs> Eli, Tim, thanks for joining us. Hey, Demetrius. Glad to be here. Hey, Demetrius, I don't know if everybody can see this, but I just realized Eli looks super familiar to me and it was really bothering me. But I think he was in the movie Varsity Blues. He looks a lot like... Uh, I get it, that all the time. <laughs> I'm, all I'm, the I'm, I'm picturing him throwing him a pass to tweeters streaking down the line right now. Like, it's unbelievable. No joke. When I go to Starbucks in the morning, the barista puts James on my thing. She, James, James, she does. James, I get it all James, the time. Uh, Van, Van Der Beek, Beek or something yeah. like that, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, and man. right about that age, age too. So. Yeah, how funny, man. That's awesome. You could at least be the stunt double, you know? Sure. <laughs> yeah. That is hilarious. Uh, so Tim, Eli, whoever wants to kind of jump in, can you tell us kind of just a quick summary of HOK? Uh, not quick summary, but tell us a little bit about HOK and then what you guys do uh, specifically there. Anything that may have been left out of the bio? Sure, I'll, I'll hit the highlights. So you know, HOK um, 
we actually started here in St. Louis um, about 65, 66 years ago uh, as a single firm in the Midwest. And we expanded to 24 global offices. We cover all major continents in terms of work. Primarily, our offices are Asia, London, Middle East, and US. Uh, we're about 1,500 employees, give or take, right now um, in terms of full-time folks. So good-sized company. And uh, you know, our team here in St. Louis is a bit unique in the sense that you know, as being the founding office, it's gone through a couple iterations. And, and what, what Tim and I do is really lead design projects here. And this is a perfect topic for the two of us in our studio as HOK does work all over the world, but there is a gravity towards this kind of work, particularly in the Midwest. Um, we're seeing a lot of interest in it in you know, Rust Belt and industrial cities uh, in the Midwest. Um, and it's right up both of our alleys. I think we have a passion for it. And so I, I wouldn't say we consciously got together seven years ago, Tim and I said, we're going to do adaptive reuse. That's what we're, <laughs> but it started to happen. And then about halfway through, we said, we should continue to do adaptive reuse. It's really cool stuff. So it fits the market. It fits what we do at HOK. Tim, any additional thoughts, comments to that? Uh, no, I think it's interesting the way Eli put it. You know, we didn't necessarily go looking for adaptive reuse, but adaptive reuse found us, uh, which really says that it's just ubiquitous. It's happening everywhere in the developed environment. You know, right now we have more buildings than we've ever had, clearly. So uh, we have more to potentially adaptively reuse or figure out what we're going to do with this our as our cities and our environments evolve. Yeah. So I gave sort of a abbreviated explanation of what adaptive reuse is. Tim, how would you, if an alien landed on the planet and was like, what is an adaptive reuse? Mm -hmm. Assuming he speaks English. Oh, how would you describe what adaptive reuse is? Or assuming that I speak alien, which yeah. <laughs> what my people say. It, you know, it's actually pretty simple, I think. Adaptive reuse is really just the process of reusing an existing building or site or anything else for that matter for a purpose other than what it was originally intended for. So metaphorically, when you use a pen to poke a hole in a jar so you can put fireflies in it and they can get air, you're adaptively reusing that pen, right? It wasn't intended to be a stabbing thing. But when you get sort of beyond that, you can look at some buildings which can be adapted with relatively few uh, sort of adaptations. Think about manufacturing lofts or large buildings with large floor plates, large amounts of space, big open areas. Uh, those are the craft breweries that you're talking about. Sometimes residential lofts go into these buildings. They're easy to use because they're very versatile. But then there are other types of buildings that require a lot more adaptation because their infrastructure limits what you can do with these future uses. So like a gas station, which might've had gas tanks has to be cleaned up so that its new use can be clean enough for whatever we're gonna put on that site. Or historic buildings like that Moss Federal Courthouse that you'd mentioned, that's got historic limitations. It was built uh, 115 years ago for ways that people worked back then with lots of divided up separate offices with lots of walls and low ceilings. They didn't have air conditioning at the time. So you know we're really challenged with how we adapt that building to fit modern expectations uh, for the marketplace. Now, you both have kind of hinted at this, but it seems that there's been a recent surge around adaptive reuse and it's more mainstream now, I think. Why do you think it's kind of happening, I guess, and, and what's sort of 
pushing that surge. I can feel this one to start and Tim, you can tag on. I think there's um, probably three or four really key reasons why. Uh, num number one is the availability of building stock, as Tim said, it, you know, particularly when we're in urban areas or even suburban areas at this point, you know, available land that's highly desirable is number one, as you look for, right? So what we're seeing is we're seeing these uses change, particularly in that when we talked about the places we're seeing a lot of this, you're seeing um, what has been traditionally manufacturing or industry or other, other types of uses that type of work has changed over the past few decades. And so these, these buildings become available along train corridors, along infrastructure corridors. So they're in great locations. They often have really good services and you know, often you're getting vacancy. So that's really attractive, right? You go, great, that's number one. Number two is they're, they're often, because of that, built in a way, as Tim was hinting at, the ones we like and the ones that we, a lot of the work we've done are, they're built very robustly. So if you have a building that was built as a print shop, for an old newspaper, right? Newspapers tend to tend to get much more digital. You've got really large columns, heavy floors, big open spaces, and very tall floors because it housed printing equipment, right? Printing equipment yeah. comes out, and all of a sudden you've got the bones of something really extraordinary that you wouldn't necessarily build anymore day one. It'd be hard to convince someone to spend the money to do that. So that's two. You get great location with infrastructure, incredible bones to work with. And then three, if, if the building's in good shape, you can also get to the market pretty quick. If you're not overhauling the structure and the core and the shell of the building, if you're really cleaning it up and coming in and essentially fitting out what's there, you can get that. And then last one I would put out there, there's my first three. The fourth point would be the sort of intangibles that both of you talked about, or all three of you talked about when you said, have you been in spaces? Do you like them? Mm -hmm. uh, there's a kind of texture to the space of history there's generally some pretty amazing light and air and you don't necessarily know why, but it's because, you know, when you do a ground up building nowadays, you're looking at sort of optimizing more often than you're looking at other things. So you get all of that kind of color, you get history, you get these old materials. And if you can contrast really kind of wonderful things, people tend to just like it. I mean, it's, <laughs> it's hard to put any other finger on it than, than that. So if you can get all four and we are seeing all four in a lot of our markets, that's why you're seeing the trend. Up yeah, Eli, I'd, I'd even riff on that last one. I think people are searching for authenticity in our digital and commercial world. They want something that's real. They want something that they can see and touch and turn off their screen and experience, you know, a little time travel back and forward, you know, what things could be. <laughs> and I think that's why we treasure some of these historic spaces. And it's why we have the National Register for Historic Places, right? Because these are cultural treasures and we want to keep them in our purvey. So Michelle could probably speak to this as well, but one of the things that I've seen is that cities are also using these old rundown areas as sort of a jump off point for redevelopment, where they're taking these old factory areas and giving them to new companies at low rates so they go in and re, uh, retrofit them into something else these breweries these art districts and then someone else, like michelle will come in and redo something for a uh, housing complex next next to it uh, townhomes or whatever and then all of a sudden that whole area is revitalized and it changes into something completely different yeah i mean I, you're seeing a lot of that um I think you've seen more of it in urban areas, you know, in, in core cities as opposed to bedroom communities. Um, 
So Tim and Eli being in St. Louis, um, it'd be interesting to get your perspective on this, but in Southern California, I think the, I guess, area that comes to mind is the LA Arts District, the Los Angeles Arts District in downtown, which, you know, for many, many years was a place that you just didn't go. It was a little scary. Um, It was, it had a lot of um, homelessness issues, you know, in many cases, it was industrial buildings that were just obsolete and weren't ever going to come back as industrial buildings. And, you know, I don't know what started kind of that genesis, but over time, you have seen kind of that idea of the of the the breweries and, and uh, you know, the little incubator spaces, the shops, um, the marketplace where you have restaurants and small businesses coming in. And, and then what followed is redevelopment. So I think I haven't seen as much adaptive reuse in terms of residential. Um, I think that's harder to execute. Um, Again, I'm not the expert on this. Tim and Eli certainly are, but (laughs) I think it's harder to execute adaptive reuse to residential. Um, So I think like using that LA Arts District as an example, I think what you really saw is a lot of those spaces converting to some commercial use. And then once you created a there there, the residential then followed on sort of the obsolete parcels that really didn't have the opportunity for, for adaptive reuse because they just didn't have the good bones. Um, the other example that comes to mind, at least in Southern California, is, you know, you have a lot of these packing houses. And what's been really neat to see is how the packing houses have been converted to really public gathering spaces, again, with, with small shops, small business incubator, a lot of the food, you know, beverage coffee, those types of uses, the ice cream shop, and and getting a lot of those different uses within one historic structure. Um, And so that's the other example. And I think, you know, for Jason and Demetrius and I, we're all very familiar, obviously, with what the packing house is in in the city of Anaheim um, that Shaheen Sadigi did. And, uh, you know, I think think there's probably countless examples of that. But from, from a city's perspective, I think they like the idea of adaptive reuse. I think in California, in some cases, it might be harder to execute just from a cost standpoint. But again, not the expert on it, but just kind of um, my thoughts. Tim, you want to talk a little bit about the process and sort of your approach to designing a space when you when you take on an adaptive reuse? So first, you've got to fall in love with the building, right? You're going to have a relationship with this thing. And it's just like you met one, somebody in one of those craft breweries, right? And you got to understand that these buildings have two paths. One is just the physical artifact, right? The architecture, the walls, the structure and whatnot. And the other is its soul, right? It's what happened inside those walls, who was there, what they did. And in order to explore that, you need to do research on the building. Obviously you need to visit it. And I'll tell you a little story about the Moss Project in just a moment because we weren't able to visit it due to the pandemic. But as you do the research, you need to follow these little rabbit holes that develop and research the people and the activities. And then suddenly you have this new family of characters, one with heroes, one with villains, side players, dysfunctional characters. It's really quite amazing. And then using that, you can tell the story in your design, right? And it's about finding out what was important, what is important in that building, both the physical artifactual parts of it, and then the soulful parts of it. And you set priorities to make decisions as you you advance design. Are we gonna restore areas? Are we going to 
blow some away and media blast plaster off the wall so we can expose brick or where there might have been ceilings. Hey, let's just get rid of those so we can expose these beautiful trusses and the details which hold these things together in ways that were ne not necessarily meant to be seen, but we find beauty in them now. So once you start to find the soul, then you can start to look at the building systems. And I really feel that just the building systems and the program then all fall into the wake of what the meaning of that building is. And they're actually pretty easy to do, right? You, you look at building systems, can we reuse, can we restore? Do they need to be refurbished? Do they need to be totally replaced? And you know, obviously you're working within a budget, but then you kind of begin to put these pieces in and understand how to make the new program for that building celebrate its past and then have a clear point where we can understand what its future is so that that past is respected. Yeah. yeah, can we can we yeah. point out how because I know everybody can't see it. Maybe they heard it in his voice, but as soon as he started describing what he's doing in the very beginning, I mean, it was a whole like bright, super <laughs> excited. No, I think it's awesome, you know. And it's that passion about our industry that I think is dying in so many ways with people that they just don't get to experience. So I just want you know I want to applaud you because I thought that was you could just tell like this is your this is your jam, man. It was super cool, super cool. It's exciting, and I'll tell you for the Moss project, when we were able to visit, we did, we visited it once in September and I'd seen pictures of it and uh, understood a little bit about it, but it was a different building when I walked inside of it. It was not what I expected. It was a building that's been built over three different periods of historic time, 1905, 1912, 1932. In some ways, it's a real patchwork of things. And while some uh, historic buildings are very clear in what they were and tell you what they want to be. This one was like an orchestra warming up. Too many voices, not in synchrony, and you have to really try to understand how to take away the voices that, that aren't meaningful, important, find the ones that are, and then let that building sing for what it is. Yeah. Eli, can you talk a little bit about the Duncan Lab and office building project that the um, Cortex Innovation Community? Yeah, I'm going to riff off of Tim's uh, fall in love with it because we, we all we all worked on that at, at a time and we've worked on that in that development for quite a while. So it was it was one of our it's one of our newest projects. And it was it was a building that when you walked in and a lot of adaptive use buildings are like this, you tour them. And you, you know, your instinct is, oh my God, what are we going to, what is, how much of this do we have to clean up? <laughs> but the reality is that you then have to take a breath and say, no, no, how much of this can we save to really put into the spirit of the building? And when you could squint through the kind of amazing spaces that were the, the history of the old print hall, I think that's what we all gravitated towards very quickly. And also the respect, uh, Tim mentions the history of the building. One of the things also you have to do when you do these buildings is, is not because of your love to celebrate it, be over exuberant to try and change too much of it. And so sort of the exterior of the building became very much an attitude of, of restore and clean and, and bring what that building was back to its life with some very, very simple moves. So the kind of surprise is when you walk inside and you, you know, our goal was that you would be able to understand when you got into the space really it's history immediately and in the way we expose certain elements, but then by literally how you move through and how we organized those spaces of passage and transition, you would immediately understand what its future was. It was really, it's part of a continuum. And that's kind of, I think what gets me out of bed with this kind of work is that realizing 
and I know that this might sound a little bit esoteric, but the idea that we're all part of one story, that the the those who that helped build that building, you know, from the bricklayers all the way through the people who or you know ran the printing presses, that's part of the story that leads they were innovators in their day. And what they did gave us a space to then create and help the folks who are in those research laboratories now be the new innovators and 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 eventually someday they'll hand off to a next generation as well. It's kind of humbling to think about when you realize that, that we're not just making everything new. Yeah. And so that project to, to us, I think embodied all of those things, you know, required us to be very edited. It required us, as Michelle said, to be mindful of, you know, costs and how much we put in it to make it viable from a real estate perspective and still pull off something that was pretty beautiful. What was that building previously? And, and, and it's a research lab now, is that correct? Yeah, it's it's a Tim. It's a series of research laboratories, right? I mean, it's got a variety of different um, elements in it. And previously, it was a, a St. Louis Post Dispatch's print shop. I mean, it, that was its original history. So, if you remember, if you can close your eyes and visualize those great movie reels where you see all the you know the big vertical <laughs> rules of newsprint that go that were going way up into the sky and over rollers and you know this like this the classic like old movies of headline and they show you those crazy big spaces that that's what went on in that well, catch me if you can if you ever saw that movie i don't know if anybody saw it but it, yeah. that, he had that huge print shop i think that was in france or whatever but right which is why some of those spaces were there because that was what was running around in those um in those volumes correct me if i've mis misstated anything to them i think i'm no totally but what's great is right you know the the central hall where those print machines were now can be used to create great architectural space you know for labs that all the administrative and offices around them can look into and experience in a new way i'm curious when i mean when you guys from a design perspective you get into it but then you know I, I give Demetrius crap all the time and, and Michelle once in a while because, you know, they come up with these grand ideas from a, from a design perspective and paper perspective and they leave it to, you know, monkeys like myself to figure it out in the field. And, um, and we run into all sorts of issues, especially from like a code perspective, you know, so kind of like for, for some layman stuff, you know, if you're going to go flip a house, I tell people all the time, don't touch the walls. You know what I mean? Because the last <laughs> thing you want to do is touch the walls. You just want to do all the lipstick. So you don't have to get into code issues and that kind of stuff. How heavy does that become when you guys are moving in? So I know you talked about, you know, how, how can you restore versus what do you have to replace and those kind of things, that relationship between your structural engineers and everybody else that you go through it. How heavy is that when you're dealing with buildings as, as old as you're talking about? I think it depends. I mean, let's let's do three case studies, Tim. Right. So with with forty three forty, there was a lot of and forty two forty, Tim. Those all the four digit numbers <laughs> along Duncan. <laughs> there, there there was really robust structure in place, very much gridded. So our, you know, we say probably we would say don't mess with the columns too much, you yeah. know, because they tend yeah. to do the instead of walls. Same idea. Yeah. So those were relatively easy, and what they tended to be built for when there was heavy industry, they they had to hold a lot of weight. It was a lot of heavy equipment. And so generally they're two-way systems structurally, generally they're fairly deep and fairly robust. So if you got to punch some holes through them, it's generally not that big a deal. You got to do the work to make sure you can punch all in the right place, but that's on one end of the spectrum. And then Tim can talk about Moss, but if we go over to the other side, Demetrius mentioned the Tyson Emma Avenue project. That was one we, we walked through with the engineers on day one. Because the, those buildings, we we fell in love the moment we saw them, and when we heard what what Tyson's vision was, but they needed they needed quite a bit of work, and so we had to be really really thoughtful. We had to add bracing, we had to add other elements to 
keep the pieces we fell in love with. And that was on the far other end of the spectrum. There was a, there was a few moments walking through where we were looking at the engineer, like, should we walk there? Uh, <laughs> and he said, yeah, it's fine. And, um, and uh, thankfully we were able to really do save all those pieces. So it varies. And, and that walk through, like Tim said, that walk through with architects or engineers who have done this kind of work or contractor, Jason, who's really, really savvy, frankly, all three, if you can get them is really good will tell a client or someone interested in the building how where on that spectrum you're going to land. And we would recommend doing that before ever jumping into a broader vision. As, as, as Tim said, I think before you love it, you got to kind of get to know it. Um, and we would recommend that. I think another piece that is, it's typically challenging because our society has evolved significantly since these buildings were built. Mm. The accessibility that older buildings had is very limited, right? A lot of these buildings were built up on plinths with stairs. So you had to be able-bodied or carried into a building. And now we, we look at how buildings uh, relate to the site so that we don't have to have ramps any, everywhere, but you know we work it so that all people universally can get access to the building. And then you look at like restrooms and door clearances and just all types of things that able-bodied people don't think about, but in, this way that we're really accommodating every type of person and creature for that matter that uses these facilities, that's a big place that change is required. You know, so often we're looking at, oh, wow, these are really cool restroom fixtures. Wouldn't we love to keep those in place? Okay, well, the, the toilet stall width is only 30 inches wide. <laughs> you know, you can't, you can't fit in it or there's no turning radius for somebody in a wheelchair right. or, or right. something like that. So then you have to add fixtures and then there's the whole fire sprinkler safety and this and that. And suddenly these buildings of yesterday that we're trying to make buildings of today have to hold twice as much stuff before you even put the program in. Yeah, good point. In California, we a lot of the older buildings that were reused had to go through a series of seismic retrofits. So you have some buildings, depending on how thoughtful they were with the a process. Some buildings will have these giant metal braces that were just kind of aesthetically horrible, but um, had to go through that. Do you guys run into anything like that on a seismic retrofit? And you don't really get the earthquakes that <laughs> we do. I don't think you get any, but. Well, we actually do believe it or not in St. Louis because of the new Madrid fault. We're a higher seismic area than you would think. Oh, really? Um, Much higher. Yeah. And then Moss in Salt Lake City is right on this Wasatch Mountain fault line, which is also an area of high seismic activity. Mm -hmm. And that is really what is driving that project. It's an unreinforced masonry building, like a Lego building where you didn't snap the blocks together. And uh, it's been traditional to use concrete shear walls and that diagonal steel bracing to essentially build a building within or around the building that you're trying to save. But there's been new technology, these fiber reinforced polymers, carbon mats that you can actually epoxy onto those unreinforced walls. Uh, if you can do that on both sides, you can really create something that's much more integral. Uh, there's new technology that's emerging that uses recycled car tires to help provide that sort of fiber reinforcement. And that's really interesting. One of the other things that you can start to see in terms of drivers behind adaptive reuse is climate change. In the same way that we're adapting to earthquakes and what we know about design, you can see flooding, intense heat, the wildfires are driving ways that we have to take buildings that were not designed for that or sites that are in 
precarious areas that were not designed for that, rising temperatures, et cetera, and try to adapt those buildings even for the uses they were originally designed for. But often if they're a cultural institution, you know, we might actually try to adapt that reuse and make it more usable. Demetrius, to your question about seismic, it goes back to the, the sort of go check it out, get to know it. Mm. Some buildings can be fairly easily retrofitted for seismic and others just don't have the, the framework to make it easy. And that's a, that's a key component because keep coming back to Michelle's point about how do you, you know, can it be cost effective? It can if it's right, you know, and um, that's one of those places that if you've got to do a ton of work carefully to uh, slowly insert a new lateral system for seismic, you're going to have a pretty big budget hit right off the bat. So you, you can assess that with your engineer and your contractor pretty quickly to see if you can do some of these more innovative techniques. Yeah, that makes sense. Would you have, this is a tough question, but do you have sort of a understanding of what that ballpark difference would be, maybe percentage-wise of kind of the quick and dirty fix of just throw up some braces and compare it to some of the more innovative approaches to retrofitting? No, I th and, and I'm far enough in my career to know not to try and, and make it sound <laughs> really good, right? That I've learned, I think when I was early in my career, I'd probably try and tell you something that sounded right to make you feel good about the answer, but the answer is no. <laughs> and it's one of the challenges is the way a lot of these older buildings were built, you know, the, the quality of the laborers really varied. And so you, we've a, another lesson we would give you if you if you could if you could distill talking points out of this podcast here'd be one, which is you can't trust the drawings. You just you absolutely can't. And what we found more often than not is uh, to Jason's point, you go in and you think a wall is built like it's shown on the drawings, and you open it up and it was not built that way. And it still um, applies today. <laughs> probably a lot more. <laughs> that is the uh, the challenge with saying there's a universal solution. Every one of these buildings has its unique qualities that you have to just kind of get into. So that's the risk. But frankly, if you're a developer or um, a prospective client and you say, um, I want to buy X piece of land in an urban core, I tell you there's risk until you get out of the hole because man, this, we could have an entire podcast on the stuff we found when we started digging. <laughs> and it's just, where do you want to assume the risk, right? If you want zero risk, you got to go find a greenfield site with no challenges and no climactic problems. That Those are getting fewer and fewer. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> or they don't have a location that anyone can sell. So, you know, the question comes back to the client is what risk do you want to take on? Here's a known building. We can talk about some risks or here's an unknown site and you can try and mitigate risks by other means. Yeah. Now, Tim, can you talk a little bit about sort of trends uh, going forward, uh, things that you guys are seeing and incorporating and maybe something that's sort of on the horizon that people are thinking about to incorporate into adaptive reuse? I think we've seen the trends of adapting warehouse type buildings, rust belt buildings, loft type buildings and into residences. That was sort of entry level adaptive reuse and people really got an appreciation for these older buildings. Uh, if you were to start a craft brewery or a restaurant, you can get instant culture or instant sort of- uh, Vibe. Yeah, instant vibe, instant, uh, it's that, that sort of, yeah, we've been here forever, even if you've just started <laughs> up, right? And all those things are, are, are really important. And so what's interesting is on one hand, there are projects that 
are historic and want to be restored to a, I would say, a more museum quality uh, type of status so that you can appreciate all those elements. But people really appreciate a little bit of knockabout, I think, where you can look inside and see the structure, see how people used to build things. What was that laborer doing in, you know, 1920 when they put up a beam and put their name on it? You know, those little moments are precious. Yeah. And, you know, they're part of those stories that we love to love to tell. Developers, uh, as Eli was mentioned, you know, you're looking for space. You're, you're looking for whether it's in, you know, urban core, how are you going to take your risk? Where are you going to put the space and then try to, to, to sell that space? And a differentiator in adaptive reuse buildings is that you can tell a story about it, that there's something interesting about that building. And as architects and people who are often paid to create those stories so that developers can help to sell them, you know, and potentially raise, you know, some good lease rates, right? If you've got a great story, everybody wants to be there. (laughs) That means value. I, I would add on one thing, Tim, which is a trend is not just reuse of building, but reuse of what you find inside. Because sometimes what you find inside the buildings are things you just would never in a million years to specify or buy. And so do you, do you turn an old you know, crane hook that's been lying rusting for 70 years into a light fixture? Do you take, you know, Tim, like the terracotta lion's heads that were in storage that were part of the exterior facade a hundred years ago and do they become a furnishing element? those become really unique cultural kind of draws if we can find them and reuse them. And, and I think what we're seeing our clients is sort of, I think at first they would sort of nod at us and say, yeah, that sounds great. And then a couple of weeks later, they're like, are they nuts? I'm just going to buy something. <laughs> I want to use this thing. But once they see it, once we start to have it, some people take the leap to do it and then they see it in action. They go, Oh my God, that's actually extraordinary. You know, because you have these kind of found things you know, we, um, on the Tyson project, the, you know, the, the wood grain, um, I'm, I sort of like to do woodworking on the side. It's a hobby, which I don't unfortunately have time for right now, but <laughs> you cannot find the kind of look and grain and feel of wood nowadays. That you can, if you salvage old wood. So salvage wood on the large scale was, was a hot thing five, 10 years ago. So it's hard to find now. And in fact, lumber right now is hard to find anywhere. I mean, if, <laughs> if you had, it's crazy just trying to get it normal stuff. Right. <laughs> So it, we, you know, you find an old pile of black and soot covered stuff that somebody would say, just demo it, but just like, just take a second, clean it. And all of a sudden this kind of like, you can't find that stuff anymore. So I think that another trend is that caution of before you go in with the, with the demo crew is assess it, take it, see what's in there and really take a moment to see what you have on your hands. Ties into all of our thoughts of sustainability and culture and all that stuff, but it's it's a ton of fun. But it does take a leap of faith because it takes patience. You know, it's a little bit like you're you're fishing. You might find something, or you might be sitting on the boat all day and come back with an empty bucket. But it that's a trend we're seeing as well. And then really and then truly using that stuff um, in the building. So what you just said, Eli, resonates so much with me. Um, I, and because I just had an experience where. Um, where we went to dinner. Uh, we were in Charlotte, North Carolina, a couple of weekends ago. Uh, there is a, a, an old church that's in a, the Plaza Midwood district of Charlotte, just outside of Uptown. And it's an old church, uh, about 5,200 square feet in one building, and then an adjacent building that I think is about 2,500 square feet. And it's an adaptive reuse, and they've turned it into a restaurant called Supperland, which, shameless plug, uh, 
amazing, amazing, amazing food and just experience. But part of the experience is the adaptive reuse that they did. So they took this, this old church, they retained the vaulted ceilings of the old former church. They restored the old pews. So kind of to your concept of taking what was inside, they took those old pews and those pews are now what, what you sit in um, as you're dining in the restaurant. Uh, the former ch- church pulpit is where the open fire kitchen is. And really just the whole, you know, you open the front doors of the church, double doors, that's the lobby, but right in front of you, they've retained um, the existing wood floor, which runs uh, basically down the center aisle. And the way that they've oriented the tables is such that there is still a center aisle that takes you to the open kitchen in the church pulpit. So just, uh, you know, that whole concept and that experience, if you took that same restaurant and you tried to put it in a new building, it would be an entirely different experience. And part of the menu really speaks to kind of this, you know, Southern hospitality, Sunday church, uh, barbecue, following church kind of era. And, you know, a lot Mm -hmm. of the things on the menu speak specifically to that. Um, And it's, you know, it's a Southern steakhouse. There's other things that are happening on there too. But but yeah, everything you just said, Eli, I was like, wait a minute, I just was in a space that did exactly that. Um, and, you know, as we talk about spaces, it was like that experience that we had, not only because the food was outstanding and the service was, you know, well, I think we had one of the best waitresses I've ever had in my life, um, but just the experience of being in that space was really, really uh, moving. One thing I, I would, for your listeners or for any of you that if you if you're in an older city, a Charleston, a San Francisco, um, something in a downtown core that's been around for 100 years or more, take a pause on one of the old streets and look at a, what they call a background building and just stop and look at it for a second. Look at the, and what you realize is the craft that was put into those, all the stones, the, the shape of the old you know, steel mullions, the, the doors, you know, the, you, you can, I sometimes am blown away just looking at the detailing on, on these gorgeous old doors, you know, and then you're like, you go to Home Depot and it's like a sheet of, you know, MDF <laughs> and, and a, you know, brass knuckle that's going to, that's going to be replaced in two weeks. That's the stuff we go hunt for, Michelle. That's, and if you can find ways of bringing, you talked about the restaurant, all those elements were craft, right? Mm-hmm. They were really, they had a level of attention paid to them. And, that's the thing that we struggle with because we all love it. We all know we love it, right? And how do you get that out of way and use those things in, in a new modern twist and really bring that to people? If you can pull it off, right. it's fabulous. It's just fabulous. Tim, do you have a, a example of going through this experience of trying to convince a client that this is worth salvaging? Because there's probably some added cost to to bringing something back to life. What is that kind of like going through that and trying to explain? I know it looks like trash right now, Mm -hmm. but we can turn this into something something that means something to your building, your space. Yeah, I've, I've had experiences on all sides of the spectrum, but if you can imagine taking a book, tearing out all the pages and throwing them out, right? And that's what you're salvaging. You're going to pick one up and you're going to try to tell somebody, hey, this page is valuable to some bigger picture, bigger story. And what they're going to come back and do is ask you to provide that context. Okay, tell me the story and tell me why it's valuable. So that's that's actually a challenging part on our side where we're sort of finding these things, picking these things that we think have value and then pulling them together 
so that they do make a coherent story and help tell the life of that building and those people who were in it through that building's lens. You know, so that when you walk into that church, right, Michelle, you walk in and suddenly you are just like the people who are going there to get baptized or first communion or just go to church on Sunday. And all of that just comes rushing into you and you're just there for dinner, right? But it's so much more of an experience because of that and because of the story that was allowed to be told through all those elements. On the other side, have you had some where you go through the effort of salvaging something and then it just misses the mark when you finish up and you're like, "Eh, maybe we didn't need to do that? (laughs) Yes, but I I would go in with the approach to save everything, Hmm. right? Because you don't know what you're going to need as you write that book, as you tell that story. And so for as long as you can, and during the demo process, right, selective demolition is more expensive than just raw demolition. So how are you going to tell somebody to go in and to Eli's point about, you know, saving wood? There was a a building on our 4200 block that had joists in it that were really nice old wood, right? I couldn't write them into the story and we couldn't get them to be saved for demo and they went away. And the things that go away that could have been saved for something but just didn't fit the cost model for the project, you know, again, to be passionate about it, you want to fall in love with everything and then something's got to go, right? And it's it's hard to see that stuff go. So I like government clients, institutional clients, universities and whatnot. They tend to have a longer term view and they tend to be willing to invest a little bit more in saving some of this culture for that organization. Uh, if you're a, a commercial developer, you probably have a little bit less tolerance for it. You know, what's the threshold? What's just enough that I can create that story? What's the newest building that you all have um, done an adaptive reuse on in terms of vintage? I mean, we talked like we've kind of spent a lot of time talking about like the history of a building, but yeah. you know, I think we think of adaptive reuse and our minds go back to 50, 60, 100 years ago. But you know, have you done an adaptive reuse on a building that's 10 years old or hmm, probably not? That'd be my guess. It would be smaller, right? Because the uses and the ways that people use those buildings haven't changed as much in 10 years, right? 4240 was 1947, uh, but that's still 70 years ago today. We did. That. <laughs> that's true. Uh, I'm thinking, do we have anything? I mean, we've done, we've certainly done large scale renovation type work, but it, it more, less of a change in use and more of a, how do you take the building and, and, and reboot it completely? And that's been with stuff that's been like 20 years old, you know, where you, you kind of, you know, a great one is some of our work in sports. We've had two, two recent arenas where we really, you know, it, there was a way you viewed sports and the way that, that that was started 20 years ago. And it's totally different now. So we went in and we said, okay, we got to keep it. We're going to, we're going to do significant changes. Um, gosh, I'm thinking about a true adaptive reuse though, Tim, that's not like with the building 70 or 80 years old. I can't put my finger on one. I mean, it might bore you guys too, right? I mean, I don't, I don't see you guys uh, lighten up about something ten years old like I did when you were talking about uh, you know, <laughs> eighty, true. ninety years old. Eli, Eli, how about how about World Trade Center? Oh well, WTC would be eighties. Yeah, yeah, that's true. WTC would be eighties. Um, that's a proposal that's on the boards right now, and that one is interesting because of its its yeah, it's got a ton of challenges. Commercial office to residential. Yeah, so Michelle, oh, wow. we have okay. we have we have one in design right now that's in proposal phase. It's not in construction, but so that's a good cat. That's a good one. We'll see what comes of that proposal. 
And I think we'll see more of those, to be blunt. I think we're going to see post-pandemic, I think we're going to see a lot of big open office spaces and a lot of retail spaces that folks are going to be wondering what to do with. Well, you know, and, and I, when I asked the question, I wasn't thinking of this, but as we've talked about it, um, you know, one example that has happened in Orange County in Southern California, um, in part to address the homelessness crisis uh, that exists here, is um, the County of Orange, uh, along with Homemade Orange County, took an like a light industrial slash office building. Um, and actually it was two stories. So just kind of your typical two story on grade. Uh, and they converted that into a transitional housing uh, shelter. And so uh, you now have 425 beds in this space that was previously, you know, an, a manufacturer light industrial office type of facility. I don't know what the vintage of that building was, but if I were to guess, it's probably a, a 30, 40 year old building. So I, it, it'll be interesting to see if we see more of that type of, of reuse um, on a go forward basis, particularly in this post pandemic. And as we address some of the social issues that, that exist in our world. I've got to cut in because we're running up against it on time. But before we get out of here, quick question to you guys. I'll start with you, Tim. What's one thing that you would advise for someone that's going to take on an adaptive reuse project? Got a lot of tips so far, but what's kind of one thing that bubbles to the top of your mind? I would say be patient. Starting an adaptive reuse project is like sitting in a bumper car in a darkened room. And then they turn <laughs> the switch when the project starts. And you're banging around with all these things that you don't even know what they are yet. And the lights just slowly come on over the course of the project and to a point where you can thread your way around all the obstacles. Man, I love that, that description. That's fantastic. In a darkened room in a bumper car. That's perfect. (laughs) (laughs) That's such a great point. And I think it applies to projects in general, but especially adaptive reuse you learn more and more and more as you work through a project. You, you think you spend so much time on it and you know everything about it, but over time, slowly things are still unveiling themselves throughout the life of a project. And I'm sure that, that definitely <laughs> applies for adaptive reuse. Uh, Eli? Uh, I, it's hard to follow that. That's pretty good <laughs> closing, right? Um, I would say my advice, I've given a bunch of pointers to the podcast and all those apply, but to, as an overarching thing, just know you mean it. I mean, it, you, you don't want to go wading in deep, knee deep into this and then decide, I think I wanted to stay on shore. <laughs> it's not a good idea. Like you go, you go, and you're going to, there's tra- you know, challenges that come with it. Um, Cause you have to be committed to what Tim's talking about. You can be committed to the idea of the story. You got to be committed to the idea of the culture and you have to be committed to those, those unknowns, you know, know the risks of what you're doing going in. It's not, like I said, it's not as easy as a greenfield site. And and that's just part of the gig. So as long as they know that and they understand it, it, it makes the road a little easier to, to handle the stresses. There's, you know, there's never a construction project that is easy, it just doesn't happen. It's, it usually starts wonderfully and gets rocky for a bit and then ends fab. If it's, if it's a good project, it starts great, gets bumpy as we deal with all challenges and then comes back to great again on opening day. Uh, and uh, that's just exacerbated with adaptive reuse because you'll see you tend to find more challenges. Yeah, fantastic conversation. Thank you both, uh, Tim Guidus, Eli Hoisington. 
Thank you for joining me again from HOK. Uh, you can check out HOK.com and you'll see all the projects that we talked about. And you can actually just search these guys. You'll, um, you'll have uh, links in our show notes and you can link directly to them, see projects that they've worked on and that we talked about here. Thank you, Jason Michelle, for joining me again. Thank you, Tim, Eli. Thank you to the listeners for listening. And we will talk again next time. Thanks. Thank you. That was awesome. That's all for this episode, but keep listening for a sneak peek of our next episode. Thanks again for listening. Spaces is part of the Gable Media Network. You can check out similar content at gablemedia.com. That's G-A-B-L media.com. If you enjoy our show, you can support us in three simple ways for free. You can leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or on your podcast app if it allows you to. Tell a friend and follow us on social media. But before you go, next time on Spaces Podcasts. I guess what I struggle with is when you go to a 3D house, let's just use that as one example, right? In a house, we all know if you were doing that with manual labor, there would be a variety of different materials and products that are constructing that. But in 3D, we're talking about concrete only. How does that all work? Good, very good question, Michelle. Um, let me just take it to uh, a higher level first, and then I'll answer your question. So what we hear in the media and has, we have been hearing for a while is that, you know, you can 3D print a home in 24 hours at a fraction of the cost, like 10% of the cost of a regular home. Now, um, this is not the truth. It's simply a, <laughs> it's simply a blatant lie. I know it might sell printers, but the, those customers will be disappointed. Thanks for spending time with us. Talk soon. Hey, architecture firm owners and emerging leaders, get ready for unparalleled insight into the development of a world-class architecture firm and a worldwide organization driving the digital transformation of the design and construction industry with Build Smart, the podcast that's changing how our profession operates. We share the incredible stories behind innovation in the building industry with my friend and co-host Patrick McLamey, FAIA former CEO of the international architecture firm, HOK. You know, Yamasaki's office or firm lasted during his lifetime. And when he passed away, I think that was the end of the Yamasaki office. Helmut did not want that. He wanted a firm that would live out and grow beyond the founders. In season one, discover the untold stories behind HOK's meteoric rise. From 150 employees in St. Louis to a powerhouse with over 1,900 staff members and 27 offices worldwide. You know, they weren't as polite as the Kojima people. That was just boom. And anytime you have a creditor, whether it's Kojima or the bank, that wants their money, unless you can raise money someplace else, you are out of business. Bankrupt. Bankrupt. And hold on tight for season two, where Patrick takes us on a new adventure as chairman of Building Smart International, shaping the future of digital transformation in the design, construction, and operation of built assets. 
Ian Howell, Ken Harold, and I, Ken was my technical representative from HOK, the three of us took a tour of Europe of five cities in five days. Very busy time. Simply follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Build Smart Now and uncover lessons that will transform you and your architecture firm.